the Lord, everybody. I like that line, what a gathering of the faithful that will be. How many are thankful that we're a faithful people and we serve a faithful God? Amen. Has God been faithful to you? Why don't you clap your hands to him and give him praise? Wake yourself up a little bit. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for standing. Uh, you can be seated. We're going to get into our Bible study today. And uh, this is a part two in a series that I began on uh, a couple Wednesdays ago. But it's a standalone concept, and I want to get to three fallacies, three common fallacies that Christians believe that I, I hear it uh, far too often from apostolic people. Uh, these are um, concepts that get ingrained in our mind and our thinking that are simply not biblical. They're simply not true. And uh, the three that we're going to deal with today, I'm just going to warn you, you know, preachers have soapboxes. And uh, these are three of my favorite soapboxes. So if I get a little worked up, just forgive me in advance. Uh, but I have seen these three fallacies literally wreak havoc in the lives of people who get caught up. And they may not seem like a big thing. Uh, they might seem trivial to you. Uh, but believe me, these are issues that have really caused problems in the lives of Christians, people who, who have access to the Word of God and, and who really should know better. And so we're going to deal with them today. Now, I'm going to take you to the next slide, and we're going to look at the very first fallacy, the first of three that we're going to try to get through today. And uh, this one is called the only God can judge me fallacy. Anybody familiar with that phrase? Maybe you've come into contact with it. Only God can judge me. I hear this all the time. In fact, I think that this is... <laughs> Uh, many Christians' absolute favorite little phrase. And they get it from Matthew 7 and 1. It's just a short little, uh, little blurb there that Jesus said. And we're going to look at it in its full context in just a moment. But can we read it? This is the verse that the controversy comes from. It says what? Judge not that ye be not judged. Now, several uh, months ago... Uh, I wrote an article uh, that I titled, Right, Righteous, and Self-Righteous Judgments. Right, Righteous, and Self-Righteous Judgments. Anybody ever been judgmental before? Ever caught yourself in a moment of, of just judgmentalism? Uh, I certainly have. It, it is true that as Christians we should not be a mean-spirited, judgmental people. That'd be a good place to say amen. We do have to guard ourselves from that. A spirit of just judgmentalism can get on you. And uh, really, maybe a better way of saying that is a spirit of criticism can get on us. <laughs> Anybody ever had the spirit of criticism get on you? Anyone ever been a, a victim of the spirit of criticism? Uh, a critical spirit, now that's a terrible thing to have. And so, uh, there, but there is a difference between right judgments or righteous judgments and critical mean-spirited judgments. But the idea that only God has a right 
to make a judgment call about our actions is absolutely not a biblical concept. Anyone have children here today? It's my son's birthday today. I just got a, uh, the only thing he asked for for his birthday from me is that I'd wish him happy birthday from the pulpit. So tonight he's going to get a little happy birthday from the pulpit. He's in Sunday school right now, but uh, that's the only thing he asked for. I said, well, that's free. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We can do that. And, uh, but it is important to realize that as a parent, we understand. I, I love my children, and I don't want to be critical of my children. But as a parent, I have a right to look at my children and say, you're not doing right. That isn't, you, you can't act that way. You can't talk that way. Uh, you, you can't do that. That's not something you can do. That's not, uh, that's not a mean-spirited uh, uh, response on my part. That's just common sense. And, and so the idea that Christians have no right to look at the culture, for example, the idea that Christians don't have a right to say homosexuality is a sin is absolutely not a biblical concept. To say that based on the word of God is a righteous judgment. Now, if I say that I hate homosexuals, that would be an unrighteous judgment. Anybody awake? Anybody there? I, I can say, for example, that Lying is absolutely contrary to the word of God, and it is wrong to lie. If I say that I hate liars, that means I probably hate just about everybody. Because I don't, I don't think there's probably a person in this room who hasn't told a little white lie at some point or another. Ah, oh, all right. So to, to turn that into a, a hatred, that would be an unrighteous judgment. But to rightly, what, is, what does the scripture tell us? What did Paul say? We're to rightly divide the word. And so that's a judgment that we have to make. Every time that we, that we interpret the word of God through prayer, and we're studying the word of God, we're making judgments. And, and sometimes God puts a judgment in our lives. And it's uncomfortable, isn't it? When God speaks into our life or when the preacher, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and let me just pause and say this. Did you know that God still speaks to us through preachers? God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. And a lot of people want to bypass the preacher and go straight to, you know, it's just, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. The just me and Jesus fallacy. God has always called men and women and used them to speak to people. That's, that's how God operates in this world. And so... The judge not lest ye be judged or the only God can judge me concept is absolutely wrong. God in no uncertain terms has called believers to be what? Holy. Can we say that out loud? Holy and righteous. Furthermore, righteousness is not just a state of mind. It's manifested in lifestyle and actions. Let me just pause and tell you what I mean by that. A lot of people would tell you that righteousness is an inward state of the heart. Righteousness has nothing to do with the outward. But I can say that I love my wife, but if I beat my wife, what am I demonstrating? I'm demonstrating outwardly an inward problem. And so the inside always produces problems on the outside. There's no such thing as separating the inside from the outside. Everybody with me? I can say that I'm honest, but if I lie, I'm producing something from the inside. Amen? 
So it's connected. Our inward and our outward are connected. And so when God called me to be holy and he filled me with the spirit, I can't walk around naked anymore. I can't walk around with the spirit of lust and immorality in my life. Why? Because the outward is a reflection of the inward. That'd be a great place for an apostolic to say amen. And so it's all connected. And we can absolutely can look at outward things and say, okay, there's a problem there. I'm making a righteous judgment about someone's actions based on the word of God, based on morality, based on God's holiness. Paul commands us to flee youthful lusts. That's an action. And then he gives another action. He said, but follow righteousness, 2 Timothy 2.22. And so we can and must rightly divide the word of truth. And then we're also, the Bible says, to judge with a righteous judgment. In other words, listen carefully, godly people have a right to discern right from wrong, righteousness from unrighteousness, good from evil. To say otherwise is unrighteous. And so God has called us to do that. He wants us to do it with the right spirit. He wants us to do it carefully. He wants us to do it in submission to the word of God. All of those things are necessary. But it really is pluralism or secularism at its finest to tell us that we're not able to make any judgments about another person. By the way, that is what the culture is peddling right now. That no one, especially Christians, especially people who believe in Judeo-Christianity, they have no right to make a judgment about another person's lifestyle. But we can look at lifestyle, look at culture, look at actions and say, based on the word of God, that is not correct. We do it with love, though. Amen. Everyone said with love. Now, I'll take you to the next slide. Obviously, Jesus was not advocating turning a blind eye to sin or telling us that we cannot make spiritual judgment calls about ourselves and others. The verses immediately following bring clarity to the whole discussion. Let's look at them quickly. Here's what Jesus said in the previous verses. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Isn't that a powerful scripture? The basic meaning here is that we are to judge ourselves before we judge others. There is an unrighteous and unholy brand of judgment that we can quickly allow to fester in our spirit that is harmful, hypocritical, and ungodly. If we condemn others for things that we ourselves are doing, we bring condemnation on ourselves. Romans 2, 1 through 3 makes that very clear. If we judge hastily, callously, contemptuously, carelessly, wrongfully, someone say that with me, wrongfully, or prematurely, we are guilty of judging with an unrighteous judgment. And those who judge others in such a way will be judged by God in the same way. That's the whole point that Jesus was making when he said, judge not lest ye be judged. And so the idea here is that it would be unrighteous and unholy to point out the flaws in someone else's life 
if we have those same flaws. And by the way, nothing turns people away from Christianity like Christians who profess righteousness with their mouth and condemn others for doing things that they are also doing. We destroy our testimony if we speak out against one sin and then we're demonstrating all kinds of other sins in our lives as well. Nothing destroys our witness and nothing harms revival like Christians who are pointing out everybody else's beam when they have a great big beam in their eye. Can I get an amen? I know that gets a little uncomfortable there. That is what I call unrighteous or unholy judgment. It's also not helpful when Christians hastily point out things in people's lives without knowing all of the facts. Sometimes we don't know what we think we know, and we start making judgment calls about someone or something, and we cause more harm than good. But when we have all the facts, and when we have examined our hearts, remember, we should examine our hearts before we examine other people's hearts, because only you and God really know your heart. You can't really know the condition of someone else's heart. You can have a good idea, but in the end, we have to make sure that we're not being hypocritical, that we are walking in righteousness. And then when we've done that, we can stand on the word of God and say, thus saith the word of the Lord. And we can call people to righteousness, call people to holiness, call people to a place of having integrity in their life. How many think we need a revival of integrity in America? Washington needs a revival of integrity right now. We need a revival of integrity in America. And so Jesus was not saying that we cannot make judgments. He was saying that the way we make them is very important. Now I'll take you to the next slide. Let me give you some uncomfortable. I know it's going to get uncomfortable. That's okay. Um, I wrote down some questions that I think that we should ask ourselves when we're in the middle of making a judgment. And here they are. Number one, do I enjoy it when others are harshly judged? Uh, we should be a people who lean towards grace and mercy, not towards harshness and judgment. It doesn't mean we don't make judgments, but if we enjoy it when people are harshly judged, that, that, that portrays something in our spirit that is not right. Do I enjoy arguing more than truly helping? When we make judgments based on the word of God, we should not do it for argument's sake. Anyone known someone who just really liked to argue? You run from those people, don't you? Nobody wants to be around someone who just loves to argue. But sometimes we do have to be willing to have an uncomfortable conversation and we do that because we love people. For those of you who have children and grandchildren, you know that sometimes you have to have very uncomfortable conversations with your children. And it's not always fun. And you don't do it because you want to hurt them. You don't do it because you want to argue with them. You do it because you love them and you want them to live right. You want them to grow up and be healthy and to be well-mannered, even-tempered. Here's another question we should ask ourselves. Am I quick to judgment without having all of the relevant facts? Do I elevate my opinions above the Bible? That's a big one, and that's what most people in America to do today. We elevate our own opinions above the Word of God. You know, a lot of people get a little too complicated with theological debates, 
I, I was talking to someone about the issue of uncut hair the other day. And, you know, really when it comes down to it, if the Bible says not to do it, we're not supposed to do it. We don't, we don't, sometimes, sometimes God gives us every reason we shouldn't do something. And, but sometimes God just tells us not to do it. And it doesn't matter if we have all the reasons or not. We have to be obedient to the word of God. That's a righteous judgment. Uh, I'll be the first to tell you, there's things that God has told me to do. And there's things that God has told me not to do in my life. And I didn't have all the reasons. Anybody ever been there before? I didn't have all the reasons. I didn't know why God told me not to do that. I'm thinking of something right now that's a very private matter of my life where I really wanted to do something. And I thought it would be the best thing for my life, for my ministry, for the kingdom of God. And to this day, I have no idea why God told me not to do that. But can I tell you, it is always better to put God's judgment above your judgment. Always. Because God, otherwise, we're saying, God, I know better than you. And that would be the ultimate act of pride and arrogance. Here's an important question. Do I judge myself as harshly as I judge others? Wow. That's something to think about, isn't it? Am I doing the same things that I criticize others for doing? What do we call that? We call that hypocrisy. Boy, that, that's a frustrating thing, isn't it? That's a frustrating thing when you come up against that kind of person. Do I pray for the judgment? Do I pray for the judgment of others or for the conversion of sinners? How many are praying for sinners right now? Praying that God would draw them. Am I willing to admit it when I am wrong? <laughs> no wives look at your husbands right now, okay? Everyone face forward, nobody looking around. Do I make judgments from a place of humility or superiority? Do I realize that all righteousness comes from God? Do I care for sinners or callously condemn sinners? Am I manufacturing self-righteousness or exampling godly righteousness? How many know that we cannot manufacture our own righteousness? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Righteousness comes from God, and God imparts his righteousness to us. Are you thankful for that today? We're partakers of the glory of God. We're not emanators of the glory. It doesn't come from us. We don't produce the glory. The glory comes from God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Am I jumping to conclusions or executing godly discernment? Do I judge from a place of knowledge or from a heart of wisdom? Am I unwilling to make righteous judgments for fear of confrontation? This one is very important. And uh, I often see Christians who are so concerned with not wanting uh, to offend people that they are unwilling to have uncomfortable conversations and uncomfortable confrontations. But sometimes you have to be willing to have the difficult conversation out of love and say, I just need to talk to you because I see this happening in your life. I see you going in a direction that worries me and I love you and I'm concerned for your soul and I want to see you thrive. I want to see God bless your life. And sometimes we have to be willing to have those conversations and how they respond is between them and God. But sometimes we have to face it head on. That's easier said than done, isn't it? But we still have to do it. Am I unwilling? Uh, am I justifying sin with my silence? That's very important. Uh, many Christians unwittingly justify sin simply by keeping silent. 
And, and culture puts that pressure on us as Christians right now. Uh, Christians are, are one of the most pressed down uh, groups of people in the world today. Uh, the world doesn't want us to have an opinion, but we're unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And our silence is a dangerous thing. Does my unwillingness to righteously judge harm my witness? You know, if you're on the job and people have no idea what you believe, then you're not being salt and light in the world. We have to be willing to express what we believe and what we stand for. The world has no problem preaching. I know that we think preachers are just guys that stand behind pulpits, but the world has preachers. Everyone in Hollywood's a preacher now. Politicians are preachers now. Lawyers are preachers now. News organizations, they're all preaching to us. Everybody's preaching from every direction. Uh, but Christians, Christians, we have a right to stand up and, and express what we believe. And it, it is our witness. It's our testimony. Will I accept righteous judgment as easily as I dispense righteous judgment? Have you ever seen someone who could dish it out, but they couldn't take it? They could judge all day, but they never could receive judgment. They, you ever known someone, they could tease everybody mercilessly? They tease and tease and tease, and then you tease them one time, and they fall apart. You know what I'm talking about. Don't look at me. Some of you are like that. Yes, you are. There's a lot of people like that. They judge everybody all the time. They've got an opinion about everyone. They're, they've got something to say about everybody. And then one person points out one little thing that they might could work on or, or one little flaw in their life, or maybe, and they cannot take that at all. We have to examine our heart. Because we have to be willing to receive righteous judgment as well as dispense righteous judgment. That'd be a great place for Apostolic Tabernacle to say amen. Praise the Lord. Do I exemplify godly mercy in my interactions with people? Have I replaced mercy and grace with acceptance of sin? What I mean by that is many people will call uh, their acceptance of sin and they'll say, well, I'm just being gracious and merciful. God is long-suffering. And God will forgive us when we repent of our sins. But God does not tolerate sin. All right. Anybody read the same Bible I read? God will be long-suffering. In fact, right now, God is, is, it's only mercy and it's only grace that's holding back the hand of judgment right now. The only reason Jesus hasn't come back for the church is because of grace and mercy. He's giving this world time. He's giving, he's giving the prodigals time to come on back home. Praise God. And I'm thankful for it. But, but I want you to know that God's grace and mercy does not mean that he accepts or turns a blind eye to or tolerates sin. And many Christians will excuse sin. They'll tolerate sin. And they do it under the guise of, well, I'm just full of grace and I'm full of mercy. You can be long-suffering. You can be patient. You can be loving. But that does not mean that you can tolerate or excuse sin. Hello. Praise God. And so don't, don't use grace and mercy as a cover screen for saying sin is okay. Sin is never okay. Do I righteously judge sin or unrighteously justify sin in my own life? And in the lives of others. And by the way, it's always easier to justify your sin than someone else's sin. 
That's just human nature. That's how, that's how our minds work. And so we need to have right, righteous, and avoid self-righteous judgments. Can I, can I get an amen? All right, I'm going to take you to the next one. I'm not moving quick enough. Uh, I told you these are my soapboxes, and so uh, I'm, I, hopefully I can get to all three here. This is what I call the follow your heart fallacy. Boy, this one just gets me going. I've seen so many people fall into this trap. And, uh, and I hear Christians say this to each other all the time. It makes me cringe. And every time I hear it, I just want to jump out and say, no, no. This is the advice that, and I hear young people especially, young people give each other this advice all the time. Will you just follow your heart there? Just follow your heart. Follow your heart. You, your heart won't lead you wrong. Just trust your heart. Just let your heart lead you. Hogwash. No, sir, don't follow your heart. Jeremiah 9, 17 and 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 28, 26 says he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Now, when you hear people giving out that, that little piece of advice, just follow your heart. Just, you know, not to pick on women, but women do this a lot. I hear this a lot. Just follow your heart, girl. All you, my wife will throw something at me later. That's okay. Just follow your heart. Now, don't, when you hear that, don't just jump up and say, he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. It's tempting. I want to do it, but don't. Hold yourself back. Maybe, maybe cushion it a little bit. <laughs> Listen to Mark 7 and 21. This is Jesus. Wow. And this one is really powerful for those that think following their heart is the best thing to do. Jesus said, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? They come from within and they defile the man. And so that's why we desperately need God to take out that, that old heart of flesh and give us a soft, sensitive heart that will seek after righteousness, that will seek after the Spirit. Now, let me take you to the next slide and let me show you what you should be following. And, and here's, here's exactly what uh, Jesus said. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, that, just, that means it's not going to be easy. That means you're going to have to repent a lot. That means you're going to have to recalibrate your heart a lot. That means you're human and you're frail and you're finite and you have all kinds of proclivities that are not righteous and not holy. And every day, you're going to have to do like Paul. You're going to have to get up. You're going to have to pick up that metaphorical cross and you're going to have to follow after Jesus and say, Lord, I'm making a choice today. I'm going to follow after the spirit and not after the flesh. I'm going to follow Jesus. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. It sounds backwards, doesn't it? But it's not. That's exactly the recipe that we need to follow to be right with God. Verse 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Praise God. Galatians 5 and 16. 
This I say, then walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. So your flesh, your heart, your humanity is constantly at war with the Holy Spirit that is dwelling inside of you. There's this constant battle. Listen, if the Apostle Paul was able to humble himself and admit that there's a constant struggle between his flesh and the spirit, then we should be humble and honest enough to admit that there's a war that rages inside of us daily, daily. And we have to overcome that. And the only way we do it is by carrying our cross and refusing to follow our heart. Let me say that again. Refusing to follow our heart. The last thing in this world I trust is my heart. The last person in this world I trust is me. To, to trust ourselves, to put all of our, to put all of our faith in, our, in ourselves, that's humanism. That's humanism at its finest. I put my faith in God. I put my faith in Jesus who bled and he died for me at Calvary. And so I can pick up that cross and I can follow him. And he gives me power. He gives me power to walk right, power to talk right, power to overcome my own shortcomings, the power to overcome my own mind. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. I praise God for that. I don't have to trust my own heart and my own mind. I can be transformed and renewed by the power of the Holy Ghost. Anybody thankful for the Holy Ghost today? Praise God. Praise God. Amen. All right. We're going to get to the third and final one. I have about five minutes here. It's not nearly enough time. But this is what I call the just me and Jesus fallacy. The just me and Jesus fallacy. Anybody ever heard someone talk like that before? Well, I, it's just me and Jesus. All I need is just me and Jesus. Me and Jesus is going to be okay. Anybody hear that? I hear that a lot. And that is not a biblical concept. Now, you absolutely do need Jesus. And you need to have a close personal relationship with Jesus. But you also need the church of the living God. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's right. I've said this many times. Some of y'all are tired of hearing it. But Jesus didn't say that the gates of hell won't prevail against Ryan French. He said the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. We need the church. Uh, the apostle said that he died for the church. He died for us, but he died for the church. And so Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised and let us consider one another. Look at the person beside you and say, that's you and me, one another, the church to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more, that means more often, more and more. I know the trend today is less and less and less church. But the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, we need to get together more and more. Because, because as the world grows darker, the church needs one another. We need each other more than we have ever needed each other. We need our brothers. We need our sisters. We need to provoke one another to love. Provoke one another to steadfastness. Provoke one another 
to faithfulness. We need to encourage one another in the Lord. We need to carry one another. Sometimes you got to pick. Sometimes when you're in battle, when your brother falls, you got to pick him up, put him on your shoulder, and you've just got to carry him back to safety and say, I'm not leaving you on this battlefield to die. We're going to make it to heaven together. We're going to fight the good fight of faith. We are going to run till we receive the crown. We're going to make it to the finish line. Praise God. We're the church and we need each other. Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We absolutely need one another. We need Jesus. We can't make it without Jesus. But Jesus is the great shepherd. And the way that Jesus operates, he made it clear all through his ministry and all through the Old Testament, is he operates through under shepherds. So that's your pastor. So there's the great shepherd. You have an under shepherd. That's the pastor. And then we're the family of God. And we all work together. No one's any better than anybody else. We're all a member of the same family. John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, too. That's talking about the Gentiles. Uh, Aren't you glad that the Gentiles can be a part of the church? Probably none of us would be able to be here today if it wasn't for this little uh, concept here. So I have other sheep, too, that are not in this sheepfold. They're not Jewish. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock. Praise God. How many are glad to be a part of the flock, the, the church of the living God? And by the way, there's one church. There's not a whole bunch of churches. Islam's not a part of the church. Hello. Islam is not a part of the church. Buddhism is not a part of the church. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father who is above all and through all. And in you all. Amen. All right. Next slide. Romans 12 and 4. I'm trying to move quickly here. For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office. So we don't all do the same thing. So we being many. Everyone said many. By the way, the church is strong. There's millions and millions in the church. We're not all here, but we're all over the world right now. We're one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. So we're all connected. It's not just you and Jesus. It's not just you by yourself in this epic battle with Satan and fighting hell all by storming hell with the water pistol all by yourself. We're a part of one body. Hallelujah. And there's many members and they're all fitly joined together. And they, all, and they all serve different purposes and fill different roles and contain different offices, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. And I'm so glad when I look around this church today and I think of all the people, there's people upstairs all over this building doing different things. I thank God that it's not just my gifts used in the kingdom of God because Ryan doesn't have a whole lot of gifts. But I see precious people all over this building, even people that aren't in this room right now. There are people on these pews with the gift of prayer and the gift of faith and the gift of healing. Praise God. There are all kinds of gifts represented in this building. And we need all of them working together. What a powerful thing. 1 Corinthians 12, 14. For the body is not one member. Say that out loud. For the body is not one member. It's not just me and Jesus, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand... I am not of the body, 
Is it therefore not of the body? And that's what a lot of people do. They say, well, uh, you know, I'm not the hand. I'm not, I'm not this. And so I guess I'm just by myself. No, no, no. We're all a part of the body. Every single one of us. None of us are any better than the other, but we're all connected to the same body. And of course, Christ is the head. I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 12 and 18. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Amen. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest. This, this is the part I really want us to hear. Some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. Praise God. Anybody receive that today? Oh, hallelujah. Sometimes we look at things and we think, well, they're singing. They're doing that. They're, that's the most important. No, 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 no. Sometimes it's, it's that person who's praying all by themselves. When nobody's looking, on Monday evening, they have power with God. They are doing, they are waging war in the spirit, and they are vital to the kingdom of God. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen. Wow, there's a lot of holiness implications there, isn't there? Anybody catch that? How many believe we ought to be modest? While the more honorable parts do not require this special care. In other words, I don't cover my face. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. And so we're all a part of the kingdom of God. How many are glad to be a part of something bigger than you, bigger than me? It, it, it's bigger than all of us. It's the kingdom of God. And I'm going to tell you, the trumpet's about the sound, and this church is going to be the church. It's not just going to be one guy in a house somewhere by himself. No, no, it's going to be the church of the living God. The trumpet's going to sound, and we're going to be lifted out of this dirty old world. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Praise God, and I'm excited about it. Let's stand together and let's pray.